Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Lombardi, author of the book, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for interest. Chris Lombardi is a journalist and author who is interested in how ordinary people interact with the decisions of those in power. She has an MS in journalism from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and an MFA in literature and creative writing from City College of New York. Her work has appeared in The Nation, Guernica, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The ABA Journal, and at whyy.org. Today, I'll be talking to her about her new book, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Chris, I'm really interested in how you... Uh, started to get interested in this topic all the way back in the sixth grade. Can you talk about what sparked your interest? In the sixth grade? Oh, you, you know, my Howard Levy story. Um, I was in sixth grade and I was, uh, you know, and one of the kids who reads all the books in the library and eight handed me a book she was reading. It happened to be a book called Going to Jail by Howard Levy. Howard Levy was a, a, a resistor who was in jail for um, not allowing to training other Vietnamese doctors and so forth. And I'm, I'm in sixth grade, I'm, you know, 11, and I'm learning that there are Americans who are political prisoners. And I think my, name, my, name, my mind started to be blown by that moment. Yeah, I suppose that would be uh, quite surprising. Um, so where did you go next from there? Uh, how did you pursue that, that curiosity? Um, well, you know, I was, I was always, I've always been a writer. I was writing, I wrote fiction for a long time. And my fiction always involved some factual stuff. I wrote one novel about the Holocaust, one, no- one novel about um, James Joyce's daughter who was in mental hospital, blah, blah, a lot of research. And I eventually discovered I was realized I was a journalist. And meanwhile, I, I got um, hired to work for a peace group in California called uh, the Central Committee for Conscientious Inspectors, which, which helps people uh, who figure out that they don't, that they don't believe in war and, and even when they're in the military. And 
that when I started there in the 90s, they coordinated mm-hmm. something called the GI Rights Hotline. You can find out about GI, GIRights.org. And uh, that meant that here I was, this like, writer, retired by this, this peace group, talking to soldiers every single day. And it changed my life all, again. Because there's suddenly all soldiers or somebody like me who wanted to do something big. And doing that, I was coordinating hotline with Vietnamese, um, Vietnam War um, veterans. And they were, like many Vietnam veterans that you see in the media, very smart and very passionate. And I learned a lot from them. And I would joke that, you know, it's going to be a revolution. It's going to be from progressive anti-war veterans. That's how we, people who know what's going on. And that idea stayed with me for a long time. And eventually, when I was at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, I was approached, I told somebody that I wanted to write a book about the GI Rights Hotline. I thought it was pretty interesting, you know. It was about a hotline that had, you know, lefty and students and ministers on one end and then a soldier calling because he's had, got trouble on base on the other. And I told this to my professor and he said, you know, why don't you broaden it? Why don't you write a narrative history of soldiers who dissent? And here I am at Columbia Dark Graduate School of Journalism. I really wanted to get in this class, book writing. And I'm like, okay, we'll do that. And that turns out to be a massive project that has taken me 15 years. Oh, wow. Well, you definitely cover a wide a breadth of history going back prior to the American Revolution all and all the way to the present day. Uh, I can't imagine what it must have been like to try and parse that down into chapters and into a readable narrative. Was that difficult for you? Well, the first proposal had, had everything up to the 20th century be one chapter. It, would, it was just some 19th century stuff, some Civil War stuff, and boom, and now I'm in World War One. That was what my first, the University of California agreed for me to do. But meanwhile, I started doing my research and, oh my God, there's so much, especially when I started to sort of integrate this idea of what kind of dissent I was, I was talking about. And uh, I'm also interested in, in how you took your background in journalism and combined it with your background in creative writing and, and created a story a narrative out of these smaller examples of dissent. Um, can you talk about the craft of making each chapter into a narrative? Well, when I was, I remember at one point I was looking at all of the narratives of history, anybody, everybody writes, right? And how do I do this? How do I create a characters out of these? All I have is all I have is piece of paper. All I have is words. Or sometimes it's all I have is interviews. When I I, I interview a lot of um, Vietnam and and Iraq war veterans. How do I turn my words on paper and and on the screen into a story? And I drew from people like Neil Doctorow, who wrote The March, and Adam Hoshiles, who wrote A King Built Leopold's Ghost, and how they managed to make scenes out of things. And deciding that for every chapter, I had to have characters, people who I knew about turned into characters just from the stuff I had to know about them and turned them into my, my barter themes. It was always tricky. Now, was it? Uh, how did you decide which characters to use? Uh, such as in, in the beginning, you use a, a gentleman named Jacob Ritter, who I found very interesting. You must have had to had to choose between several different uh, uh, historical figures. Yeah, I have uh, my my uh, cutting room has a lot of people that didn't end up getting used. But Jacob Ritter was was not was a fairly natural choice because there aren't that many in the 18th century on records that we know about. And there are enough, there, there, are, there are more than we know about, but in terms of people have enough on paper to know about what's going on with them. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I haven't I'd already written the book. I was was getting it in various drafts. But Sarah Powell discovered Jacob Broder and mentioned him in her biography of Jefferson. And she said, Battle Bride was really bad because somebody showed up a Lutheran and ended up a Quaker, which is what happened to Jacob Broder. Um, so he, he's a compelling person mm-hmm. to everybody, I think. I was interested in how there is a lot more than just the traditional descent of maybe going to Canada and avoiding the draft. There was all kinds of uniform descent. Um, there was written descent. There was uh, religious descent. Can you clarify how many you know different kinds of descent did you focus on throughout this book? Well, for one thing, I don't actually cover people who go to Canada. The, the, the conceit of the book is someone in it has to have an, had an experience with the military. Um, that can be broadly defined. For example, I had residents there, and all he did was an, was an ROTC for a while and dropped out. Um, but someone who had, had some experience with the military, and therefore they went on to challenge what the military does. But that means I left out a lot of people in terms of people who did very amazing dissent against against the government. Um, but people who had, it had to be somebody who was in uniform, even if it's only five minutes. And and as you say, there's there's I think of it as kind of a reverse funnel. You could say that the people that the book is about is conscious investors to war, and that's true. But I start especially in the beginning of of, of, of the book to include. A, a wide variety of people who stood up against something um, based on a fairly large, large mix of things. Uh, but it's eventually, it turns out to this much, this critical mass of people who are standing up against wars. But that takes a long time. But of course, it's not just war. And, and I think that's one of the, the most fascinating parts about this novel, about this book. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. is. I, I love we call it a novel. <laughs> Is that you? You are able to broaden it far, much, much farther beyond war, objecting to war, but it's about objecting to injustice, inequality, racism, all those sorts of things. Can you talk about how uh, people, what they were fighting against when when they were objecting to war? They're fighting against, um, you know, think about the, the the oath that people take in the military. We, we, we all we all took it when we were um if you've ever worked for government you know the the, the and you've seen that stuff when you see the president talks about defending the U.S. Constitution and that's what that's these people and they take it really seriously you know I've, I've interviewed many people many young you know, soldiers veterans and one of the first things they do is tell me all the values of their service army values, the Navy values, the Marine Corps values. And they're all, you know, things like selfless service, um, integrity, honor. And the vow is to is to protect the constitution. It's not it's not to fight for every single little um thing that a commander has decided to do. And what that means in terms of you say racism, that the definition of citizenship for for these soldiers, they didn't understand why other people some people were not included in that citizenship. And they needed to, to know that they they would provide for that, and that includes sometimes understanding that you were you're on stolen land, as we say now, that the Indians that that this land was taken from need to be honored as well. Not enough about that, I know. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, what about gender discrimination? Um, how much of dissent is based on that that inequality both in, in uh, gender discrimination and in sexism and and how the military has had to change over time um, based on uh, recognizing the values of of those marginalized traditionally marginalized people female calls one is for one is for fighting one is for fun um traditionally the military mindset was very is very masculinist and because for various sometimes for reasons of needing bodies, they needed to expand the military, and they said, "Okay, we'll allow women." The women were always there in the revolution. The women in in in, in male uniforms, leaving leaving in their country, and therefore they were fighting. Um, in the Civil War, same thing. And so, women who were at all involved in the military, or involved in the wars, had a role and had to fight for it to be recognized. Harriet Tubman is a good example. Who you know besides underground railroad stuff, she you know did battles. She trained. She trained soldiers. She was a recruiter, and she did never got. She finally got um, veterans compensation decades and decades after the war. For a long time, she was living just on her husband's veterans compensation. Um, so it's important. And the other thing about gender descent is, of course, that the whole business around gays in the military. Which for a long time, being gay in the military meant that you were sent dissenting right there, and that only changed what ten years ago now. The long history of that, and I—that's not my main topic because there are many people who are gay in the military who are, you know, we can fight better, and or and we can be the, the enforcer, and that's that's a, a delicate thread to do in terms of what I'm looking at, and then the other example is Chelsea Manning, who, in, by her very existence challenged a lot of the military masculinity said no i'm i'm going to be who i am and that was on top of what other things she was doing Uh everyone knows about what about the juxtaposition of of america's wars fighting for things like freedom opportunity and democracy while at the same time instilling these policies of imperialism and colonialism and and genocide it's the contradiction that some of these, pe- these people that I'm writing about had to figure out in their own selves, wait a minute, I believe in this, but this other stuff is going on. And it's my job to say something. And we can, we can do it on in, in different people. We can talk about um, Silas Lowell, who fought for John Brown and ended up joining um, the Union Army because she believed in the fight against slavery. Meanwhile, he was being tasked with um, dealing with the uh, fighting against Indians in Colorado. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to kill all those people you're telling me to kill. That's not that's not what I fought for. It's the Constitution, what I'm trying to fight for here. But it takes a lot of bravery and the ability to get to, to suffer consequence to, to do that. Mm. And, and ultimately, wasn't Silas Sewell killed a few months uh, later? He was. He, he, was kill, he was killed. He could testify. He ordered him to do it. Yeah, yeah. Afterward, I mean, it was like it was revenge, like it was all over. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, talk about uh, William Appis, uh, one of the first soldiers that can be traced to foundational injustice. Uh, what what did he do? William Appis um, is a real is a really a wonderful not wonderful, it's, an, it's a figure that I really want people to pay attention to. He was African American, and his 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 background was his father was African American and his mother was Indian. He caught, and he was in a difficult situation, and therefore he was. He was sent to another family to adopt. He was actually bound out to be a soul, an indentured servant, and he, he said he didn't want that. He's fifteen years old. He leaves town, and he's headed for Philadelphia. And on the way, he's staying in a hotel, and a couple of recruiters show up, and they're like, "Oh, he's this young man has has both all all the four limbs, and he speaks English. Let, let's let's get him in here." And they got him drunk and told him how wonderful it would be it would be to be a soldier. And he he said, Okay, he signed up. He suffers racist harassment on his way to Canada where they were where they were they were going, they were going to be working. And he goes, Hey well, because wait a minute, this doesn't work because you hired me to be a drummer and they make me do this. No. He and they, they grab they get him back. He fights in the Battle of Montreal. And while he's while he's signing, he thought thinks, you know, I don't know if I should be fighting for the men who took my country away. So he ends up goes back, ends up becoming a minister, and ends up going to Massachusetts because he was told by his father that he should fight for the Mashpee, which is a tribe at this moment is still fighting for recognition, as you know, um, or you may not know, but he actually helped help the Mashpee get more autonomy. His fight for that was part of his still continuing his, his tradition of descent. He also published a, a number of books that you should all go find. Called The Son of the Soft Forest and so forth. A-P-E-S-S. His last book was called An Elegy of King Philip, who was the Pequot leader who was massacred in 1676. Well, it's a, it's an incredible story, and I'm, I'm glad you included it in this book. And I'll definitely look for for more about him. I was also curious. Well, this was new to me. You state that by the end of the Civil War, hundreds of women had passed as male in both armies. Uh, that was just uh, new. That was fascinating and new to me. Talk about how women fought in the Civil War. There are books now about this, which is great. That cover. It's women wanted to be part of the struggle, and they they you know did all the things you know women do. We'd raise raise money and were medics. A number of them just got dressed up as men. And one my one of my characters, she uh she actually um would go as a servant. So be 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 a. It's kind of low level so much that she was mistaken as first servant in, in Southern armies. And then there's one who, I don't remember her name, was name was Mary Galloway. And then she, I'm and sorry. She, she was at the Battle of Antietam. And Clara, Clara Barton, remember Red Cross? Discovers this, this so-called young man. Says, wait a minute, I think you have to go home. Um, so they, some of them, some of them do get discovered before. Mm-hmm. But when, And you, you say that, that, S.M. Blaylock was 
discharged, and the the reasons were for being a woman. So the discharge paper said for being a woman. Yes, for being a woman. And it's a, it's a fascinating to me that that was that was accepted as as possibility. Okay, sorry, you're a girl, though. Uh, uh, you also quote a lot of uh, W. E. B. Dubois, and his writing is just incredible, and it, it kind of speaks to today and what what we're dealing with today in fighting for social justice. And it just kind of struck yeah, me that his, his not a lot has is, changed is, since then. A lot has and has not. It's true. So can you talk a little bit? Of, yeah, can oh, you talk man, about I, how he was? Uh, I'm sorry. I I feel I feel almost. There are so many great scholars who have said so, been so much about him that I'm, I'm a little shy to speak for him as if I, oh, I'm an expert. Sure. But uh, he, he, he knew he had he knew so much. He knew what was going on, and the reason he qualifies in my book is that at one point he got himself a commission. They, they, he was he was actually um, editor of magazines for NAACP, and they offered him a commission to. Help train black soldiers in World War One, and this was a guy who has been a pacifist for a long time, hated war, but he wanted to help young black men who were being recruited into this. And they 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 retracted as a commission almost immediately because they realized what was going on. That they could not let him let him in. Um, he really had a strong sense of the injustice that was being visited on these people, and that the wars that we have on that we have on other lands. Is another, is another layer of that. You have a quote by Mark Twain in the book, or you say that Mark Twain was right when he wrote that history doesn't repeat itself, uh, it but it rhymes. And you say, I hope these pages have noticed enough of our past blank verse to be useful. I think that's exactly what you were able to accomplish. And it's just um, amazing how, how history does rhyme. It seems to ebb and flow and continue, uh, as you show in this book, all the way back to 1754. Talk about the relevance of that quote. Well, actually, I used it the other day on Twitter because, unfortunately, um, Brown Taylor's trial, the whole thing that happened, that was the anniversary, 75th anniversary of Emmett Till being killed. And like, mm-hmm. lit- history is literally rhyming right now. Um, that there are times mm-hmm. when events echo what has happened before in ways that are, that are worth looking at. That's what history rhymes me, I think. It doesn't repeat itself, but it, 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 there are places where what's happening now can, can so, so powerfully evoke what happened before that it's worth talking about. Well, let, let's go back a little bit and talk again about the process of, of publishing this book and bringing it out into the world. You said it was a 15-year process. Uh, I think I read that originally was was going to be published by the University of California Press and mm-hmm. then was eventually published by the New Press. What was that whole process like? Well, I have to confess that I have health issues and the University of California grew impatient with how long it was taking me. And after, you know, what was it? 2012, I think, when that when that contract ended. And I have to say, that was, you know, eight years they, had, they gave me. And I couldn't do it at that point. And it was just, it was just difficult to do. But my my agent, who's fantastic, said, we'll find somebody else. And the new press um, agreed to do it. And I was, I'm so happy with that. I mean, my editor is fantastic. And it's, it's a village to do this kind of stuff. I had a lot of people helping me. 
And tell me more about the new press and about the, the mission of, of, of publishing in the public interest. Well, the new press was founded, when was it? 25 years ago? Um, by someone who worked for one of the, one of the more um, prominent publishers that wanted to have to found, found something that was more straightforwardly just for the people. And I have, I'm not really a big student of, of that process, but I know that they published, for example, New Jim Crow. And it's anything I'm proud, I am proud of starting a publisher with, new, with Michelle Alexander and New Jim, new Jim Crow and a lot of amazing books that, they, that they've done. And, to, and you're not trying to maximize the amount of cash you can bring forth. Yeah, and, and I think that's important for books of public interest like this. So your research, um, you, you talked about uh, you were working for the Central Committee for Conscientious, conscientious Objectors, and you must have had a lot of interactions that's, that kind of sparked some stories that for you to write down. So how did you combine kind of interviews and stories that you were told with actual documents and research that you did in archives? Well, for, inter- for interviews, all I have to do is is find archives to document what someone told me, right? So it's a little bit easier. Um, and that's and that's actually something in cooperation with the person, depending on, on who that is. Combining it with historical stuff, that's... I'm trying to figure out how to, how to really convey the difference. The difference is when you're dealing with a historical figure, all you have are documents about that, that person's words and the words of somebody about them. And some of the people that I write about are famous, but some of them are not. And all you have is what they've written or what you can find about, out about them, about that environment. For example, when I write about um, the guy, one of the, the people, Daniel Meeks, in the Port Chicago 50, I need to learn about him, and I find out he grew up in Natchez, Mississippi. And I look at Look at what can I find out about Natchez, Mississippi? But guess what? Guess who wrote about Natchez, Mississippi? Richard Wright. Oh my God, guy who always write, could write ten times better than any of us. I can't write the way he writes, but I get a sense of that setting from him. Mm-hmm. So you get help from people like that sometimes. Um, for factual stuff, it's really a question of looking at the actual as much as you can the uh, the documents that have the facts you can document. To have you can say this is this is really when this happened and where this happened including this was the weather that day so what are you working on next well i've been invited to co-write a chapter on conscious objection for a textbook the oxford text handbook of peace history that kind of textbook industrial complex stuff um the editor the one of the editors of it invited me he he did a book on on world peace that I can't afford because it's it's fifty bucks. But oh, wow. I was very happy to be invited, and I'm learning so much about it. And I'm considering the idea of doing an international version of of Eight Martian, although it would, have, it would be very different than this one. Because it takes fifteen minutes years to do it, so I'm really different. Thinking about all over the world how people have wrestled with what the government has told them to do. Mm. Well, I have to congratulate you on on this book. It it you know, I'm not an expert in military history, but it really brought up some well, first of all, it had some really incredible stories, really incredible narratives in every single chapter. I think it's organized really well chronologically and it brought up a lot of really important issues that as I said are resonating 
throughout our our history all the way to right now all the way to to to, to today and i think the whole book is just just fascinating and really opens up our readers eyes it certainly opened up my eyes so could, uh, just congratulations on a great book thank you so much uh, where, i really appreciate it it's it's so great to have somebody who doesn't know anything about the yeah book i, I stuff didn't want to i, I, I didn't want to get into I have it that you like it i didn't want to get into too too much of the specifics in this interview because i want readers to be able to to delve into the book and and read about the stories about William Appis and Jacob Ritter and, you know, on and on and on. And I, th- I think they'll really enjoy what they find. Uh, where, where can readers Much. find the book? Oh, I want to, I want to, I want to mention the launch. We have a soft launch on October 3rd at Center on Conscience and War, which is an organization related to the one that I worked for. The one that I worked for is no more. Um, But the, the Center on Conscience and War has been around 80 years this year and they're having their anniversary uh, having a zoom on october 3rd go to centeronconscience.org and you can meet some of the people in my book well great I, I will definitely check that out and yeah it's nice to be able to go to these book launches it's unfortunate we can't do in-person events but it also makes the events accessible for everybody sure, yeah Take care. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've been talking with Chris Lombardi, author of the book, I Ain't Marching Anymore, Dissenters, Deserters, and Objectors to America's Wars. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you.